Well, good morning. Uh, can I add my welcome? Um, as has already been said, my name's Nick. Um, uh, I normally head along to our evening meeting here, the six o'clock church service. Uh, so uh, if you don't recognise me, that would be, uh, be why. Um, I am, uh, just a little bit about me, I'm really proud to call myself a social worker. Um, I work with children who are in, uh, in forms of uh, local authority care. Um, I, uh, what else? Uh, I originally come from Guernsey, a little random island uh, off the coast of France. And normally amongst the church staff, I'm not for being posh. So you can work that one out as you go. Uh, today we're going to be carrying on our series um, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, our Journeys with Jesus series. And like kind of a lot all along the way, we're going to be asking ourselves the question that Mark ultimately is posing to everyone, both in terms of the people who come inside of the story and also to us, who really is this Jesus? What does it mean for me to respond to him and to relate to him? How do I take what, what I'm seeing in the pages in front of me and, and it kind of input that into my life? Who ultimately is this guy? Mark um, is, uh, is, a, is a guy who hung around with kind of Jesus' disciples. He wasn't a disciple himself, but uh, kind of the way that tradition helps us understand is that uh, John Mark, Mark as he's known, kind of spoke to people like Peter particularly, one of Jesus' best friends, one of his disciples to kind of collect this, this series of stories and, and, uh, and, and reports of who Jesus was in order to help us, to help readers to, to understand within about 30 or so years of Jesus' life and death what it means to really respond to Jesus yourself. And so we're going to be carrying that on. And we're going to be asking a few kind of uh, fairly big, large questions as we go, um, such as uh, what does it mean? To relate to God? Can it really be as simple as maybe it sounds? Can bacon inform my worship of God? Um, and depending on whether we have time, is there such a thing as toilet humor in biblical studies? Um, but uh, that will depend on time a little bit. Um, uh, but before we go into that, why don't we pray? Um, Jesus, thank you uh, for the fact that we've heard it today all across our worship time, that you are alive and that you are well. Thank you that you're here meeting with us, that just as you encountered people as you walked on the earth 2,000 years ago, you want to encounter us now. And so I pray that as we open up your your word, um, we uh, we will be transformed ourselves by meeting with you. Amen. So the question goes for Mark, who really is Jesus? And last week we saw from Dave uh, that Mark really wants us to understand that Jesus is healer. And so what, what he does is he includes all these stories about wonderful miracles that Jesus does. Um, in chapters 5 and 6, kind of the passages that Dave was looking at, we kind of had have these stories of things like um, Jesus going and healing a guy who's kind of known as Legion because he's probably got 2,000 demons inside of him. Um, that's quite a few, um, just, just saying. Um, and he goes and, and, and meets him, Legion comes out, and, and all of these 2,000 demons go, and, go into a herd of pigs and they go plummeting like lemmings off the side of a cliff. Bit awkward, but still, quite a fun story. Um, next, you get, the, you get this, uh, this woman who is, um, who is a whole bunch of blood hemorrhages, who, who goes and touches Jesus' cloak and in an instant is healed. Sandwich kind of around that is, is, a guy called, is a guy called Jairus who comes and says, says to Jesus, my daughter's just, my daughter's very unwell. And by the time that Jesus gets to her, this little girl is dead. And Jesus turns around 
and raises her from the dead. And then just for good measure, he goes and feeds 5,000 people off two, two, two fish and a couple of loaves of bread. Like, let's just stop for a second and think about those. Because like, they're quite famous stories, a lot of them. They're all things that kind of maybe if you've been to, kind of, to RE lessons in school or you've been around Sunday school at some point in your life, you'll have heard some of these ideas, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus casting out demons, Jesus healing the sick. And I think we can become a little bit familiar with it because we hear it so much. But just stop and think about any single one of those stories. That is not normal in the slightest at all. Like, how many of our days includes going and raising a little girl from the dead? Or, like, feeding 5,000 people off about two people's worth of food? Like, that is not my normal life. I don't see many people doing that. And so, the, so it's Mark's way of just kind of slightly just pushing it straight into our faces and saying, there's something different here. There's something different going on about this guy. And what ultimately does he think Jesus is? Well, he opens his gospel in saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For Mark, there is, there is no two ways about this. Jesus is not just a normal human being. He is actually the Christ, the King, the, the Jewish Messiah, um, the one who the Jews have been waiting for in order to, to lead them out of kind of a, an exile spiritually from God and to restore them to, to relationship with God for all of, for all of eternity. He is, in fact, God himself in human flesh, walking around, doing, encountering, coming to bring change into the world. And so all of Mark's gospel is framed in that light. Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Son of God. And so as people meet him, how are they going to respond? How are we going to respond is the question. And so we find ourselves inside of Mark um, chapter 7, which is going to be our text um, for today. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to flick to it. Um, if not, don't worry, it should hopefully come up on the screen behind me. So, the Pharisees, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Who knows about washing dining couches? That's an interesting one. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands, unclean hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? I quite like that. It's quite going to the jugular early, isn't it? Like, it's not like, well, didn't Isaiah say this? It's like, you, you hypocrites, listen up. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you've got a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father or mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his mother or father, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, um, there's a word kind of mean uh, that is 
given to God as Marx is there or kind of a gift from God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you make void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things do you do. So just to kind of fill you in on what's going on there, because it's kind of a bit of a a discourse, an argument between these Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus. Um, We've met the Pharisees before inside of Mark's gospel. The Pharisees and scribes, they come out um, in Mark 3 uh, to ask similar sorts of questions. And what they're doing is they've heard that kind of there's this this traveling preacher man um, called Jesus who is gathering crowds around him. Thousands upon thousands of people are coming to witness and, and, and meet with this Jesus. Jesus guy, and the word is going out among the Jewish people that, that maybe the Messiah has come. It's kind of this bubbling undercurrent inside of Mark's current that maybe he's here, maybe he's coming, maybe, maybe, just maybe he's finally here after all these years. The Messiah has come, the Messiah has come. And so the, the Pharisees and the scribes, as kind, of, as kind of the religious leaders of the time, uh, the Pharisees were, were not kind of ordained ministers, like kind of priests, but they were kind of just normal people who'd gone through a whole bunch of schooling um, and like knew the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, off the back of their hands um, and like a whole bunch more on top of that. Um, and they're coming out and being like, how is a guy from like Galilee the Jewish Messiah? Like, and they hated the Romans as well. They were thinking, like, this guy isn't exactly being very rebellious. Like, he's kind of talking about loving people. Like, what that's about. And, and so they're coming out and they're, they're, they're trying to discredit him in some way because they're thinking, like, this surely can't be the Jewish Messiah that we've been waiting for. And so they come and they ask these questions. And so in Mark 3, uh, they ask a question of Jesus' disciples, going, well, they seem to be working on the Sabbath. What's that about? I.e., they're not very good Jews, so how could you be the Messiah? Like, if your people around you who follow you don't, like, follow all of the stuff that Jews are meant to do, then, then kind of, like, how on earth can you be that guy? They're trying to discredit him. And so we get the same here. They come out, and they, they level a kind of a similar charge. They're going... How is it that you hang around with a bunch of people who don't wash their hands before they eat? Now, you might be thinking that, um, that washing hands is kind of important. We're taught as kids by our parents, like wash your hands before you get to the table. But it was not often a matter of serious theological debate in the Harris household. It was, you do it or you don't do it, and you get told off if you don't do it. Um, and so you're a bit like, why is this so serious? Like, what's the big deal about washing hands? Well, what Mark helps us to see, and that's kind of what he does through the brackets, um, is that this tradition had developed um, to say that something that good Jewish people ought to do, particularly the Jewish Messiah and the people who hang around him, is to make sure that before they eat their food, that they are clean, that they are pure. And so that a marker of doing that would be by washing their hands and doing the other things like dining couches and copper vessels and kettles and all those sorts of things Um, but that they do it and there'd be this process of making sure your hands are clean then you eat your food and then you're pure and so you're fine sort of thing you are not in any way unpure unholy or defiled as the words used here what Jesus kind of is saying to them and the reason why he goes so like hard in on them is because the reality is that wasn't even an original commandment before God 
So inside of the Old Testament, inside of the Hebrew Bible, which they would have been following, you get these 613 different commandments, different laws that God sets out inside of what's known as the Torah or the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these are all ways in which the Jewish people understood that they were to relate towards God, passed down from God to Moses for them to follow, that if you did these things, then actually you were following in the way that God would have you live your life. But what happened over the years of, of that being kind of passed down was that they were kind of expanded and nuanced and developed um, by kind of the teachers and the rabbis who were going around. And uh, to the extent where you get what is now known inside of kind of what we now understand as something called the Talmud, um, which is kind of this 6,000-page book of like explanations of these are the, the, what it means to follow all these laws and this is what it means to understand what it means to relate to God. And Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Why are you attacking me and my followers for, for not living Jewishly, not being right before God, when actually you're, you're talking about stuff that isn't even in how God himself spoke to people? Like, what are you doing here? Because it's important to note, Jesus was a Jew. His followers were Jewish people, and they did follow the Torah. We see that in things like Peter has a real struggle when God says to him in Acts 10, go and eat what is considered unclean food. They are Jewish people. And so Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, hold on here. Like, if we were going to go get into an argument, into something about the, the Torah, the law, then maybe we could have a conversation. But you're saying that it's these things that are added on top, these traditions of humans, of men and women, that apparently are the ways in which we relate to God. No, 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 no. You've completely misunderstood something here. You are massively overcomplicating it, if that's the case. And he says, you're being hypo hypocritical, because the reality is, you're doing all this lip service, you're doing all this stuff, but your hearts are far away. That's why he quotes Isaiah, who regularly attacks um, the Jewish people at the time for just ignoring the heart issue of how are you before God in terms of how do you worship him with your heart? And although it might not be the same for us, we might not have all these things in our minds of kind of things that we set out of like, oh, these are things I have to do. Like, you know what, before I sit down, we have to, um, we have to wash our hands. We don't do it in quite that same way. I think in some ways the reality is true for us. We can overcomplicate what it means to be a follower of God a lot as well. Even just in my mind just then. I remember kind of growing up and thinking, like, oh, you have to say grace before you, before you have dinner sort of thing. Like that, check, we're good. We're all right sort of thing. Now, obviously, it can be a good thing to say thank you before you eat your meal. But it's not a compulsive thing of like, well, you do this, you're out. But, we, but that's just warning someone. But I think it comes into other ways. Things like we can put pressure on ourselves of, well, you know what, actually, I really have to make sure that I know this inside out. That, you know, if, if I'm not getting towards knowing Leviticus, like back to front, then I don't know, am, am I really there? It's like I'm being a little bit kind of like over-exaggerating this. But it can be other things like, you know what, can I pray in a certain way? Actually, have I, have I made it a little bit closer to the front in terms of what I perceive as kind of like the special seats? Or... Am I like being able to use these words like justification or righteousness or understand what penal substitution, substitution means? Even I can't say that properly. Um, like all of these things like might just be kind of, uh, just uh, can be in our heads of like, well, if, I, if I'm that next bit, 
then maybe, just maybe, I'm, I'm right before God. A little bit more. I'm good enough. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I know for me that they can so easily creep into my mind. Things like, am I serving enough almost in some ways? Am I involved in enough churchy-related things that can pass through my head? When actually Jesus is saying that not, those things aren't necessarily bad. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying like never do anything again. But, I'm, but what he's saying is actually, are we overcomplicating what it means to really follow and know him? To respond to God ourselves. To relate to him. And so he carries on. Verse 14. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Now, it's just a quick pause there. It's important to kind of see the way that Mark shifts the scene a little bit. Because what you get is that you don't get the Pharisees and the scribes there anymore. You, you actually get that, that Jesus seems to have managed to kind of just, just disarm them enough that they're like, oh, actually, maybe we got that one wrong. Because what Jesus does at the end of the previous passage is he says, you know what, if we want to talk about what it means to follow God, let's talk commandments. Honor your mother and father. One of the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and father. Your tradition says, you know what, actually, parents are a gift from God. And so what they give to me is something from God, and so therefore I honor God, not them. And you say, wait a minute, honor your mother and father or don't honor your mother and father? Commandment, tradition. Which one are you going to go for? And it's kind of one of those, that, oh, oh, maybe we've got that one wrong. Well, that's not gone well. And so you kind of get this idea that they kind of almost slink off a little bit. And they're like, oh, we've, we, we've not quite made, made, made the call this time, boys. Let's, let's go away. And so Jesus is kind of calling the crowds, um, the, the crowds back to him and saying, let's actually really get to know what, what I'm talking about here. If it's not about all this stuff that we do, if it's not about kind of building up kind of our, our, our habits and our practices and our, our ways of doing things, what really does it mean to relate to God? What really is it all about? And so he says this, hear me all of you, and understand. That's a call to us as well. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's the things that come out of a person that defile, i.e. make him or her unclean. What Jesus suddenly starts to shift our focus to a little bit is to start to say, maybe it's not about the stuff that I do. Maybe it's more actually about something a little bit closer and a little bit more rooted inside of me. Could it actually be that actually Jesus doesn't necessarily want me to start doing a whole bunch of stuff? That actually the way that I respond to him is, is more to do with an attitude within me or recognize that maybe, just maybe, the problem is more with me than it is with something outside of me. Carries on. Verse 17. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Now we'll just pause there, because this is an utterly mad moment in terms of theological history. Um, in the sense of, Jesus, Mark helps us to see it there. Jesus says, wait a minute, this isn't about stuff that goes into you, because the reality is, 
food that you eat, it goes in and it, and it comes out, expelled. Like in terms of like translation stuff, it literally does say goes to you go to the toilet about it. Um, there's the biblical scholar bit about um, about toilet humour. Now that I'm a 12 year old, we'll carry on. Um, but but he's saying that if you eat something, what what, what really does that do to you? Like it goes and it comes out. Equally, stuff happens to you it's it's all outside of you it's all it's nothing to do with you and he's kind of challenging a jewish idea that that actually humans were fundamentally good and it was things away from them that that made us impure so if i ate the wrong type of food or if i didn't keep myself in a state of ritual purity if i if if i don't do these things then i become unclean but jesus is saying no 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 because stuff outside of us just ultimately just passes over, the reality is what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they are what defile a person. Jesus is saying that if it's not about what we do, then maybe actually it's something a little bit close to home. What happens in here, what goes inside of our heart. And that Jesus poses us the hard question of actually, in all honesty, can we really say that we are good enough on our own? That in any way we are perfect, in any way that we, we, we have got everything right ourselves. Because what he does there in terms of that list of things is he doesn't make a difference between things, sins or, mis- or kind of uh, things that would make us unholy um, that we might do or that we think. He talks about murder, adultery, very action-based things. But yet he moves on to things like, well... Wicked thoughts, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, emotions, things that we might feel, things that we might think. He's saying that there is no difference between what we do and actually, in many ways, who we are. Because the one is rooted in the other. Think about something like, uh, something about murder. Ultimately, that, that starts with a feeling. It starts with, with a feeling that leads into a decision. It starts with anger, perhaps, or upset. And then the action comes out of it. Now, you might be thinking, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Not recently, at least. I'm not that bad, am I? Can, can it really be that Jesus is saying that I'm, I'm that broken? I'm, I'm, I, I don't think so. But in all honesty, can you say hand on heart that even if you haven't murdered anyone, that you haven't ever had a gossip about someone? you haven't ever had a jealous thought about someone, that you've never been proud about something, that you've never actively wanted to kind of just slightly twist something in order to get your way. Because I think there is something inside of us that wants to kind of fight back against this idea that, that, that we are fundamentally imperfect people, that we are fundamentally broken people. We want to kind of believe in many ways that we are good people. 
But yet, when you look at kind of the society that we live in, the world around us, I think all of us can recognize that something's not quite right there. That the reality is that when a near universal experience of women is to face some form of sexual abuse or harassment on a regular basis, that's not okay. When we live in a society where the poor are increasingly shunned and, and pushed out into the margins and left without support, that's not okay. That we live in a society where, where loneliness is one of the biggest uh, epidemics in terms of actually killing people. Because largely we just isolate ourselves and our, our home is our home. And we don't really know the people around us where young people are, are groomed into gangs and consider safety to be carrying a knife or, or groomed for exploitation sexually or running a drug line along a county line. Can, can it really be that, that we're that sorted? Really? I'll be really honest, I think kind of one of the hardest moments of, of kind of recognising this for me has been in kind of my training of, of social work um, and partly seeing another side to the country that I hadn't seen before and the local area, but also just in terms of things like child development. The reality is that, that when a child kind of is, is growing up from a baby into a child, it's, it's only by the age of two or three where they even begin to get concepts of sharing in terms of normal development, and that's kind of accepted. Or that at the age of one, normal development is that there's some form of rage as a reaction to being told no. Like, surely that's just something where the, it seems like the, the default level of a, of a child is to have a kind of a, a selfish personality in some ways, in terms of there being something in the human condition that just maybe, just maybe isn't quite so perfect. Even for me personally, I, I've, I've had moments this week where I've just had to kind of sit on myself and be like, oh, well, that's gone well. Like, I, I've, I've messed up at work and not done things that I said I'd do and had to hold my hands up and say sorry about that. Even last night, I was out with some friends for some birthday drinks and, and I just made a stupid, ridiculous joke that was quite harmful. And, and I had to apologize for that. Like, I'm like, come on. I thought I got this one, but clearly not. Why? Because actually, this, the heart, is fundamentally flawed. And we are imperfect people, whether we kind of want to face up to it or not. That is the hard truth that Jesus is presenting here. And so I guess the question comes, well, what does it mean then to respond why would Jesus just, just lay this down in front of us and, and kind of leave us with that, that kind of challenge of, well, we've not got it, got it right, have we? It's because in recognizing it, Mark is trying to help us to see that that is where we most find who Jesus really is. That by recognizing that we are imperfect, we see his perfection in a different light. 
that in recognising that maybe, just maybe, we haven't got this all together, that on our own we can't be right before God, that maybe, just maybe, he is coming in as the Christ, as the Son of God in order to help us out. Ultimately, in recognising that perhaps, just perhaps, that we are imperfect people, whether that's for the first time or for the hundredth time, we most learn what it means to understand the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, the good news is that we are far more wretched, we are far more damnable than we could ever have nightmares about, as Tim Keller once said, but we are far more loved, far more cherished, far more accepted than we could ever dare dream possible. Why? Because God is so good, so loving, that he would say that no matter the levels of our imperfection, I will come and make the way for you to know me. And it's not just that he'll leave us kind of scrabbling around inside that but he'll change us he'll transform us he'll move us towards him and he'll bring us along inside of a journey upwards towards the upward call of God in Christ in that at the end of all days where everything is made perfect we will stand in glory with him that ultimately is the good news of Jesus Christ that it is not the end of the story in admitting that we are imperfect people But I actually know the end of the story is that he has come to change it and transform us. Perhaps we see this most in the next story inside that Mark gives us. Um, There's a a technique that Mark uses called um, the Mark and Sandwich, um, which, uh, which is where he kind of, he puts the meat bit between two stories that help you to understand what's going on. So remember that before we had, this, we had the story of the Pharisees coming and basically putting the, we do all this stuff, that makes us right before God. And then Jesus come in saying, no. Then Jesus saying, actually, you are broken. Recognize that. And then you get a story of a Gentile woman coming along. You can read it after if you want. A Gentile woman, so someone who was not part of the people of God, who the Jews would just say, no, absolutely not, can never be before God, sort of thing, absolutely not, who comes to Jesus with with the reality of her daughter who has a demon inside of her and saying, teacher, can can you make her well? Jesus kind of has a bit of a discussion with her, but it ends up with her saying, no, I believe that you are the one who heals. I believe, that's what she's, effectively what she says, I believe that you really are the son of God. You are the promised one. And what does Jesus say? For that, your daughter will be made well. She goes home and her daughter's fine. This woman who was completely far away from God, who the, the tradition understanding would say, never going to make it, gets it so much more than those who thought they did. And because she realizes it's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus does. It's about who he is, not who I am. And so I guess, in many ways, the response inside of this can can be a few different ways. What does it mean to recognize Jesus as Mark would put him out to be? Well, I was kind of of praying about this, and I think there's kind of a, a few different ways for us. The first would be, to just embrace the fact, in a lot of ways, that we are imperfect people. That's not to say that we have a license suddenly to do whatever we want. But it takes the pressure off, certainly, to say, you know what? Imperfect, me imperfect. 
Let's have a chat. That as a church, we, we want to share this good news of Jesus coming to deal with our brokenness on the cross. That actually when we go and we speak to people, it's not standing there as the, as the holy, the pious, the pure one sort of thing. It's saying, you know, I am a fundamentally broken human being as well. Like, there can be no judgment here at all. Let me love you. The next would be to kind of just think, have I in any way overcomplicated what it means to follow Jesus? Have I at all kind of, kind of just gone away from the, from the simple truth of the gospel that is all of our mess in exchange for all of Jesus' perfection? Jesus later on inside of, um, inside of Mark's gospel, Mark 12, um, he has one of uh, the scribes come up to him again and go, teacher, what does it mean to, which is the greatest commandment out of all 613 of the, of, the, of the laws inside of the Torah? And Jesus turns around and says, well, it's this. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus saying that if you really want to know what it means to be a genuine follower of his, to respond well towards God, then you've got two simple things to do. Love God and love people. You do that, everything else falls into place. Because you're putting God first and then you're putting people first. That, I can promise you, if you if it has helped me so much, just using that as my lens inside of how I think about my life and how I see the world has really transformed me more than anything else. It's made me so much more kind of, it's made me want to do things that I feel as if God would have me to do. Not because I know it would make me right before him, but because I love him. And equally, it makes me put other people before myself. Not perfect there at all, still quite self-centered. But in the sense of thinking, you know what, if the rest of the world needs to hear this news, then my loving response is maybe to share it a little bit more. That if society is the way that it is, with, with so much brokenness, with, with so much poverty all around, then loving my neighbour means playing my part in sharing the kingdom too. Trying to bring this good news that Jesus would give to all of mankind, all of humanity, to the world around me. Love God, love people. Next would be uh, for ones of us who already um, call Jesus our Lord and Saviour, would be to, to recognise that part and parcel of what Jesus comes to do is to renew the brokenness within us. And he does that by sending the Holy Spirit as a helper. Paul, um, uh, an apostle, writes about how he has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that we are given help inside of this. He hooks into a promise, Jesus does, that throughout all of the Old Testament, that eventually one day God would transform the heart because that is where the problem lies, as we've seen today. And he does that through sending the promised Holy Spirit. And so for some of us, it might be actually to, to, to come and receive the Holy Spirit once again. It might be that you, you don't really know what I'm talking about. And the Bible talks about something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where you meet with God himself. And he comes and lives into your life, that he transforms you and changes you and renews you. And then for all of us, it's an ongoing thing that every single day, keep on being filled, keep on being transformed, keep on allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work inside of us. We receive that by the laying on of hands. We receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, the Bible teaches. And so that, too, 
like a baby something for you to respond to. And then finally, I think there's also something in, in uh, for those of us who maybe are just looking in at the moment and looking in at who really is this Jesus guy. He, he asks you a hard question, he does. In a sense of can you be prepared to face up to a truth that maybe, just maybe, we aren't perfect. But that actually, the flip side is that what he offers is love and acceptance. Welcoming in as a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High. Think about it just for a moment logically. If God, by definition, is God and so perfect and holy and other. And we, as humans, by definition, are not. Imperfect. Unholy. Those two cannot meet on their own. It's like oil and water. You try and mix the two, you're not going to get anywhere. So what if God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes to earth, takes on human flesh, lives the perfect life, and then hangs, bleeds out, and dies on the cross for you so that your imperfection might meet his perfection and be totally transformed, be made pure and holy and blameless and spotless before him. That, Mark offers, is the response here for you if you're looking in. Come and know Jesus as the Christ, as the King, as the Son of God, the one who has made you pure through what he does on the cross. Come and know him. Chris, perhaps you would mind coming to join me. I've laid out a few things there, and some of it might be uncomfortable to face up to. I know for me, being prepared to say I'm maybe not that great um, is, is difficult. But the truth of the good news about Jesus is that he offers something so much better, so much greater. And so what I'd love us to do is, um, is just kind of, as, as Chris kind of plays and, um, and I, I praise, is offer an opportunity for people to come and receive prayer, to come and just pray to God and say, you know what, I recognize that I'm not perfect always. But allowing him to come and transform allowing him to to renew and change you. Perhaps it's to receive the Holy Spirit for the first time or again. Um, So um, I'm going to pray. And then uh, then we'll see what happens. Jesus, I thank you. Um, I thank you that ultimately you are the perfect one. I thank you that that you do not look on us as our imperfection deserves. That away from you, the Bible teaches we are dead. But that in you, you give us life and life everlasting. Thank you that in you, imperfection, broken, wounded, broken hearts come and meet you and are transformed once and for all. Thank you that you don't leave us alone. Thank you that you send the Holy Spirit as a helper. Thank you that you care for us and you love us. 
And so I pray for all of us that, that we would get the simple truth of the gospel. That we can't do it on our own, but you have already done it. And so I pray for all of us that we would respond knowing that, that you really are a good and loving God, that you want to meet with us, that you want to transform us. Thank you that this means we can go with confidence, knowing that we're right before the King. And so I pray, come and have your way, Lord God. Amen.